Is there anything in your life that you have an irrational fear of? Maybe a phobia. You know, a phobia is our fear of different things. Something that you know that you shouldn't be afraid of, but you are. Perhaps even to the point of being terrified of it or petrified of it. There are some very common, well-known phobias that lots of people have. Things like arachnophobia. You have that? The fear of spiders. (laughs) What about claustrophobia? Fear of confined or small spaces. You don't want to be in them. And then there are a whole bunch of lesser-known phobias, strange fears that some people do, in fact, struggle with. See if you've heard of any of these. Maybe you can identify them. There's a blutophobia. That's the extreme fear of bathing. So hopefully you're not sitting near anyone this morning that has that phobia. (laughs) There's philophobia, the fear of falling in love. That's a sad one. Decidophobia, which is actually exactly what it sounds like. It's the fear of making decisions. (laughs) Decidophobia. Now here's a bizarre one. Omphalophobia. It's the fear of belly buttons. (laughs) Here's a much newer phobia. Nomophobia. Anyone know what that is? Nomophobia, the fear of not being connected to a cell phone. Short for no mobile phone phobia. It's not a joke and it's pathetic. (laughs) Okay, going to the extreme now. There's panphobia, which is the fear of everything, literally everything. Okay, There's there's phobophobia, extreme fear of having a phobia. (laughs) Is that self-defeating or what? (laughs) Now, this one's likely a joke. But it's a good one. Okay. Hippopotamonstrosiquibidaliophobia. The fear of long words. <laughs> getting serious now. I believe that there is an irrational fear that all of us struggle with, no matter who we are. And you could call it people phobia. The Bible calls it the fear of man. The fear of man doesn't mean that we are terrified of being around or near other people. Now, the fear of man means that we are overly concerned with what other people think about us. So we're worried about our reputations and our popularity and our status with them. And we're afraid of people rejecting us or mocking us or hurting us or worse. We fear what people can do to us and that impacts so much of how we live every single day. We come to the Bible, and Jesus has some things to say about what I'm calling people phobia, or the fear of man. Why it's so misguided or or even wrong, and what appropriate fear in our life looks like. Because if you didn't know, there is a bad type of fear, and there's a good type of fear. Bad type and a good type, and the Bible tells us what they are. So to see what Jesus has to say here, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can find Luke chapter 12. If you don't, you can grab one from the pew in front of you, and it will be on page 871. We'll get you to Luke chapter 12. 
still in the Gospel of Luke, of course, so studying the life and teachings of Jesus. And as we do every week, I want to also just stop for a minute and pray, asking God to help us as we look into his word, to guide us into truth. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word, your truth. Your word is truth, and we know that without your help, we'll just misinterpret it, we'll just miss the point. We won't see you, and so we need your spirit to guide us, and we pray that you would do that this morning. Help us to see exactly what this means for our lives going forward and to apply what we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are with us last week in, in Luke 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, we saw Jesus just ream into the religious leaders of his day. Sitting, while he was sitting around actually one of their dinner tables, conflict broke out, and Jesus starts just ranting lamenting how prideful and legalistic and hypocritical the leaders of his day were being. He did not mince words at all. He told things exactly like they were, and they weren't pretty. He even went so far at one point to to blame these religious leaders for being accomplices in murder of God's prophets that he had sent. See, these... Religious leaders, the main issue with them is that they had been trying so hard to fix up the outside of themselves, their outside behavior, but they had repeatedly ignored the sinful corruption that was on their inside. They had no heart transformation. They just had behavior modification, and they had not been cleansed from their sins. And so Jesus warned them very bluntly that there would be consequences for this that they'd have to answer to God for their sinful hypocrisy one day. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't sit very well with the religious leaders. It ticked them off big time. It's like, who does Jesus think he is getting off, telling us off like this? Who does he think he is? Jesus' offenses seem to be just piling up. I mean, his teaching contradicted many of their teaching all the time. His popularity, which was getting huge, was threatening their reputations. His woes that he was telling them just kept offending their egos. And so the leaders started to brainstorm. What can we do about Jesus? How can we get rid of him? What can we do? How could we preserve our own status? And so as we saw at the, at the end of last week, at the ch- end of chapter 11, they started watching and waiting for Jesus to make a mistake. And it said this in, in chapter 11, verse 53, as Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, with all this going on, I want you to imagine being in Jesus' disciples' shoes. Okay? These guys had left their homes, risking everything to follow Jesus. Okay? As their rabbi. And they clearly saw God's hand on Jesus. And he had literally changed their lives for the much better. For a while, things were going pretty smoothly. 
Jesus' fame was increasing. People were being healed every day. Demons were fleeing. Crowds were flocking to him. But recently, things started to change a little bit. They started to notice that some there was an increasing backlash of opposition to Jesus. Things weren't the same. They recently, even in the previous chapter, they had heard the religious leaders accuse Jesus of working for Satan. Pretty crazy accusation. And then Jesus, in the verse we saw last week, was so bold and recklessly offended them over and over and over. After which, we just read it, the religious leaders started grilling Jesus, all kinds of questions, trying to trap him, hoping to arrest him, get him in trouble. And everyone knew that these men had a lot of influence in Israel. They were, these weren't just ordinary Joes. They had lots of influence in the political world, the judicial world. They could pull some strings. And I imagine as the disciples saw this happening, they even thought, Jesus, maybe you should back off a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you're starting to step on some pretty powerful toes here. Starting to offend some pretty powerful people. And if you say the wrong theme, thing, we could all be in really deep trouble. Things that were unthinkable before were starting to become more realistic, more distinct possibilities. Things like arrests and trials and imprisonments and beatings and worse. The risks were getting more serious. Imagine if we were the disciples, all of us would be pretty worried. About what was starting to happen. Now these things were likely racing through the disciples' minds, which is probably why Jesus pulled them aside soon after this dinner party episode we saw last week. We saw, beginning of chapter 12, we read the first three verses, which say this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So the the first thing Jesus did here was he warned them to be careful, lest they become like the Pharisees and the lawyers, the teachers of the law. As future church leaders, Jesus knew that they could be susceptible to these same things. So he warned them very solemnly, watch out. Watch out for this hypocrisy. But then, as he moves on, he starts addressing the concern that was almost certainly present in their eyes. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Say, like, oh, my friends, I can see the fear in your eyes. I can, you see all these things starting to happen. This opposition starting to build up, and I can see you're worried about this. But don't be afraid. You shouldn't be afraid of these people. And let me tell you why. And Jesus goes on to explain what right and wrong fear looks like. The first thing he says here just shows how ridiculous our fear of man is. He basically asks, think about this, okay? What's the worst thing that people could do to you? What's the absolute worst thing? What are you so afraid of? Okay, so why don't we do that today? Why don't we join with disciples and and just humor Jesus? What's the worst 
that people could do to us. What's the worst they could do? I mean, they could soil our names. They could ridicule us or sully our reputations. They could take things away from us. They have the power to do that. Maybe could lose our jobs or our homes, our money at their hands. They could fight with us, yell at us, mock us, bully us laugh at us, hurt our feelings, and then you could get physical and they could physically hurt us, beat us or bloody us, make us feel pain, even torture us. They could make people we love suffer as well, which of course impacts us deeply. But I think that we'd all probably agree that the worst that people could do to us is kill us. The That's the most extreme harm that can befall us. They can end our lives, right? And the disciples were undoubtedly feeling some of this fear of death here. It really worried them. And so Jesus responded, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Here's his main point from this verse. That we should never fear people as the worst they can give us is death. Should never have the fear of man as the worst they can do to us isn't really that bad. Now, you might hear that list of ways that I just listed off, ways that people can hurt us and think, well, that's a list of pretty bad stuff. right? That, I wouldn't want to have that stuff happen to me. And people can do some pretty serious damage to us. So it seems like with that list of stuff, there is some stuff we should be afraid of. Maybe we should worry about this kind of stuff that they could do. But here's the thing. Jesus said, basically, that all those things are bad things only if we overvalue our lives. Do you get that? If we fear rejection or pain, or even death, what it means is that we are overvaluing our present life. And we're not thinking with an eternal perspective at all. Jesus was implying that if you lose your things, if you lose your reputation, if you lose your friendships or your health or even your life, those really aren't that bad in the eternal scheme of things. In fact... They might be the best things that ever happened to you. Believe that? Not easy to believe. There's no question, though, that if you look around us, our world fears death. Our world fears death big time. Just uh, one glance at the news confirms that. Many, if not most, major news stories have something to do with death. They're not... Deadly vehicle collisions, disease outbreaks at hospitals, bomb threats, missing bodies that have been found, murders, and then murder trials, deadly house fires, train derailments, school shootings, tragedies of all kind. On a global scale, it's no different. We got catastrophes and wars and threats of war and potential disease pandemics. And I don't point these things out to be morbid. Okay? I merely want to show you, our world fears these things. They fear death and what could happen. And why? 
Because death is the worst possible thing our world can imagine. From a naturalistic perspective, there is no afterlife. There's nothing that comes after death, which means death ends everything for you from that perspective. But let me ask you this today. Is death truly the worst thing that can happen to you? Is it? From a Christian perspective, it's not. In fact, it's not even close. Once we're saved, once we ask Christ to be our Savior and to cleanse us from our sin, our view of death changes drastically. Okay? Our whole worldview changes, but one of the things that changes the most is our view of death. Death is no longer something to dread. Okay? It's something to tolerate. Death is no longer a dead end. It's a doorway to a new and better life. Really, Jesus comes along and turns death completely on its head. Changes everything about it. And he does the same with all these other potential negative things that can happen to us. Suffering doesn't become such a bad thing anymore. It produces godly character in us. We grow to be more like him. Peace, patience, joy, self-control in our lives. Losing things helps us keep our priorities straight, helps us keep our eyes firmly on him, gets rid of our idols. Persecution secures incredible heavenly rewards that we can't even comprehend. Separation from loved ones becomes a very temporary thing. All these things that seem terrible on the surface are completely reversed by Jesus. What others mean for evil, God means for good. In light of eternity, everything bad pales if it doesn't completely transform into something good. And Jesus here, as he says these words, wasn't just shooting the breeze when he spoke about not fearing death or people who could bring it to you. He knew that a day was coming soon when men would, in fact, take his life. Coming very soon. They would mock him, they'd beat him, and they would crucify him. But that is all that they could do. They couldn't go beyond that. They had some very temporary, very limited power to harm him. But at death, their influence terminated. And that's why he tells the disciples here, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. They can't do anything else. Jesus knew that his disciples would also face their death soon. Many of them would be martyred for following Jesus. And he's saying, listen, they can take your life, but they can't take your soul. They can take your health temporarily. (laughs) They can't take your faith. They can't take the Holy Spirit from you. They can't take God's love from you or your eternal destiny. They can't harm the real you that is inside of you, inside the tent that is your body. They can't touch that. Someday, 
you may face your death at the hands of men. Maybe not. Maybe you will. I don't know the future. But if you do face that death, do not fear people or what they can do to you. Most of us probably won't face that. We probably won't. But many of us will likely face rejection at times or laughter or hatred. People may think we're out of our minds for following Jesus, for believing in his word. Many people might think we're stupid, intolerant, outdated. And Jesus' message to us would be the same. Do not fear those who can do all this to you. They can only do so much. And what they can do really isn't that bad. Look what's in store for you one day. They can't lay a finger on that. However, that's not the primary reason we shouldn't ever fear man. The more important reason is that the fear of man is a totally misplaced fear. Totally misplaced. It is irrational and it's inappropriate, but what makes it really wrong is its idolatry. See, when we fear other people, when we capitulate to what they want, when we try to watch out for our reputations about everything else, what happens is we are more concerned with what they think about us than with what God thinks about us. Where we effectively value people over God. We let them influence our actions more than we let God influence our actions. It's not a mistake that fear is often seen as a synonym of worship in the Bible. It's often seen that way. And so what Jesus tells his disciples next comes as no surprise. That I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Now here's the main point of this. That we should appropriately fear God as he can give us eternal death. Oh, we shouldn't fear man. We should fear God as he can impart eternal life and death. He holds them in his hands. It's like Jesus said, don't fear people. Don't fear people, but there is someone you should fear, and it ain't them. There is someone you should be afraid of. And just in case you're wondering, yes, this refers to God, not Satan. Satan has no authority to cast anyone into hell. He will be cast into hell himself. Okay, so this is speaking about God. And in verse 5, Jesus says to fear God three different ways. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear... Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, exclamation mark. The fear of God is a very 
biblical, appropriate, holy, and godly form of fear. It is a holy reverence and awe of God that inspires us to worship him and to obey him with our whole hearts. It's not a a terror or a dread, but it is a fear. It's the feeling that's evoked when you realize you're in the presence of God and you're awestruck at his holiness and his power and his sovereignty. No sin or sinner can stand in the presence of God and live. We know this in the Bible. His holiness is actually deadly. And if we have not repented of our sin and turned to Christ, his holiness will be deadly for us. Not only can God end your current life if he so chooses, but he can cast people into hell. Eternal Conscious torment away from the presence of God forever. Hell's not a joke. It's not a byword. And it's not a party. It's very real, very awful, and very deserved. not nice to talk about, but it's necessary. Think of it this way, of the, these verses. When we fear man instead of fearing God, it's like we're thrown into a cage at a zoo with a kitten and a lion, okay? Thrown in this cage There's a kitten there, there's a lion, and to top it off, you're holding a chunk of meat. And it's like you decide, okay, see the animals in here with you, you think, well, I think I better feed this kitten. (laughs) Because if I don't, he might get upset and he might scratch my leg. He might even draw some blood. (laughs) Well, sure. Maybe he could. But what happens when the lion gets hungry? I tell you, if I am in that situation, I get thrown into a cage, I am flinging the meat at the lion as fast as I can and hightailing it, right? But this is what we do when we fear man instead of God. And I'm flinging the meat at the lion, and I'm looking at the kid and saying, okay, bring it on, buddy. <laughs> I'll take whatever abuse you can throw my way. We should not give our fear, our priorities, or our worship to people because our God is a jealous and holy and awesome God. And if you think, well, that that analogy doesn't make sense because, I mean, death's a lot worse than a little scratch. Not compared to hell. Now, we might wonder... Is Jesus saying that hell is the reason that we should fear God? Is that why we should be afraid of God because of this punishment? Well, yes and no. It's definitely one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. I mean, I believe we should primarily fear God for who he is, okay? in his power, for, and for who we are in relation to him. He is holy, and we don't deserve to be loved by him, and yet we are. It's 
awe-inspiring. He is righteous, and we fall far short of his standard. He is a jealous lover on whom we have cheated with the world. There are many, many reasons we should fear God. His judgment is merely one of them. It's one reason. But sometimes I think the fear of hell gets a pretty bad rap. I mean, it's not a nice thing to talk about, so we think, well, you can't really be a Christian if you came to Christ just for fire insurance. <laughs> you ever heard that before? can't really be a Christian if you came just for the fire insurance he gives. Maybe that's true. I mean, we should seek God for many things. His love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and much more. But as far as motivations go... I'd say the fear of hell is as good as any. Whatever gets you to God. Jesus says here very plainly, you should fear God because he can cast you to hell. And if that scares you, so be it. I'm not going to apologize for what God's word says. Mark Driscoll says, if you are not a Christian, you are going to hell it's not unloving to say that. It's unloving to not say that. And let me be very clear about one thing, okay? If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you should no longer fear hell, okay? You should no longer fear hell if you've come to Christ. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Okay? If you're saved, don't fear hell. But I think we still should fear God. There's no need to fear the punishment anymore. It's been paid. But we still should fear the person and his power. Have an awe and a reverence for who he is. should inspire us to obey. During the English Reformation of the 1500s, there was a preacher named John Hooper who was sentenced to die for preaching the gospel. And while he was on death row, people were pleading with him to recant. But this is how he answered them. He said, life is sweet and death is bitter. But eternal life is more sweet and eternal death more bitter. He understood what Jesus was getting at here. Don't fear man. Fear God. Here's something else that's surprising and incredible, I think, about the fear of God. See, when we fear man, when we get all worked up and worried about what they can do to us, it only leads to more and more and more fears, does it not? We get more worried and more just shaking in our boots. We fear opposition, and then once we are all worried about that, we start fearing rejection. And then we, when we fear rejection, we start fearing continual rejection. And what's that going to look like down the road? We get more and more and more afraid. One fear keeps leading to another and another, and another. But, when we fear God, fear of Him actually removes all other fear. Okay? This is what Jesus goes on to say. Read with me in verse 5. 
says, Yes, I tell you, fear God. Verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Here's what we learn from here. We should appropriately fear God, which should cast out all our misplaced fears. When we fear God appropriately, it removes all other fear from our life. Why is this? Well, it's because come what may from people, we can rest secure in God's love for us. No matter what they do, for, do to us, we can rest secure that our God still loves us. He still cares about us. Remember, our God is holy and righteous and awesome, but he is also the definition of love. And Jesus tries to show us in these verses just how much God cares for his children. Verse 6 again. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. You get what he's saying? He's like, look around outside. See the sparrows, the, the little birds that you see all over the place. Okay? Sparrows are a dime a dozen. In Jesus' day, you could buy them in the market and they were sold super cheap. Then you could get five of them for a couple pennies. Whenever we see a sparrow today, I mean, we barely even give it a second thought. We even notice it at all. We walk by them every day. Even in the winter, they're around. But Jesus says this, and not one of them is forgotten before God. So God cares about each and every sparrow we see. And yet we doubt that he cares about us or that he loves us. To drive this home, Jesus said, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> you realize how insane that is? Scientists say that an average human head has at least 100,000 hairs. Okay, that's an average. Jesus says that God knows the exact number that is on your head right now. He knows how many you lose or regrow a day. He knows how many are white. He knows. He cares. He loves you intimately. He knows every detail about you. He's looking after you. And he says in the end of verse 7, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God cares for you more than a million little birds flying around. I always marvel at those, those two seemingly contradictory commands he gives here. The contrast here, verse 5 says, yes, I tell you, fear God. And then two verses later he says, fear not. Fear God. And fear not. And one day I realized it's not just that we're supposed to hold these two commands in tension. It's that the former actually causes or inspires the latter. Right? That the fear of God removes the fear of man. The fear of God casts out all the fear of pain and suffering and loss and death. First John 4.18 declares that perfect love 
cast out fear. And when we realize that our holy God loves us with a perfect love, we should never be afraid of anything ever again in our entire lives. Except Him. The fact is that the God who could cast us all into hell instead came down to our world and suffered and died for the sins that deserved hell. Jesus hanging on the cross and then rising from the grave was, were the most earth-shaking, awe-inspiring events in all of history And nothing should drive us to our knees quicker and more frequently than that. Nothing should inspire our continual fear of God more than his incredible love for us. That he would go through hell for us. If you never responded to Jesus' love for you before, I would beg you to do so today. God will justly meet out hell one day, but that doesn't mean he wants to. The Bible's clear that God desires everyone, including you, to come to repentance, to come and be saved. So come today. Repent of those sins in your life. Believe in him as your Savior. And the Bible promises that you will be saved. Well, if the disciples weren't feeling encouraged and emboldened yet, they soon would. Jesus continues his last few verses by giving them some pretty sobering but also very encouraging words. And here's the point we should take to heart from them. That we should appropriately fear God, which should keep our allegiances and anxieties straight in the face of opposition. When opposition comes, if we fear God, it will keep our allegiances and anxieties straight. I think the next couple verses, starting with verse 8, are, are kind of taken out of context pretty often. It says this, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, these verses are often read as a warning to make sure you just keep acknowledging Christ. Okay, keep acknowledging him. Make sure you never deny him. That's good things, okay? But these verses are smack dab in the middle of Jesus talking about persecution that was coming to the disciples. And he had just told them, don't fear the people that can kill you. Instead, fear God. And he's like, think about how much God cares for you. And then right after this, and we'll see in a couple minutes, he talks about not fearing persecution. Don't fear what's coming. And based on that context, I think these verses were meant actually as a comfort for the disciples. It wasn't a warning against them. It was a warning to those who were opposed to Jesus. Acknowledging Jesus, it was pretty simple. I mean, acknowledging Jesus simply meant openly recognizing him as Savior. Okay? Not being ashamed of that, not being afraid of that. To openly say, no, Jesus is my Lord. 
So here, Jesus was reminding his disciples of what was in store for them, not if they kept acknowledging him, but because they already acknowledged him. They could rest assured that Jesus would acknowledge them in heaven one day, that one day in heaven he'll look at them or look at you and say, you know, that man or that woman was happy to call me their, my or call me their savior. So today I am thrilled to call them my son or my daughter. Meanwhile, those who were opposed to Jesus and his disciples and mostly the religious leaders because they denied Jesus over and over, they'd be denied eternal life one day. So the flow of the passage follows says, Don't fear them, fear God. Because one day, you are going to be vindicated, and they're going to be condemned. Same goes with Jesus' seemingly scary warning in verse 10. He says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is this is what often called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? Jesus says it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that? What's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Again, I think the answer lies in the context of the passage. Remember, in just the previous chapter, what they had gone through. The religious leaders had just accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan. Okay? Which, but who is Jesus actually indwelt by? The Holy Spirit. It was a terrible blasphemy. They had just accused the Holy Spirit of basically being Satan. They accused the most holy thing in the universe of being the most wicked thing. And I believe it's what Jesus was referring to here. The unforgivable sin seems to be a conscious Intentional blasphemy of calling God's work evil. And it's something that Jesus' enemies had already been guilty of. And it's something that Jesus' disciples would never be guilty of. I don't believe that Christians should fear having committed the unforgivable sin. Because true followers of Jesus would never commit this sin. It won't happen. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid that you maybe have committed it, that's probably the Holy Spirit convicting you that you haven't. It's in the same way that the true followers of Jesus have already acknowledged Jesus as Lord. If you fear God, when opposition comes your way, your allegiances will stay true. At the heart of these words, they should be a comfort to us that justice will be done one day. And that those who killed Jesus, those who killed his disciples, those who could kill us, will be judged. You should never fear them because to be blunt, God's enemies will get what's coming. The only person that these verses should actually worry is someone who hasn't come to Christ yet. Because if you haven't yet acknowledged Christ as Savior, you might as well deny him. Throughout this passage, 
Jesus has been telling us to be unafraid of him, or unafraid of being his follower, and unashamed. But he concludes by reminding us that really, we can't or shouldn't try to do this on our own strength. Verse 11 says this, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus knew this was coming for the disciples. They would be arrested. They'd be dragged in front of the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, and they'd be falsely accused of terrible crimes and mocked and worse. They would be beaten and tortured and stoned and crucified, left to die for his sake. But Jesus says, when this happens, when this happens, don't be afraid. Don't fear your persecutors. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious of how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why not? Because you're not alone. Verse 12, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The same goes for us today. Persecution might not be present in Canada right now. It may come soon, and we have to be prepared for that. We shouldn't be afraid of it. The Holy Spirit will be right there with us every step of the way. He'll empower us. He'll give us strength to stand for Jesus, to keep us from denying him. He'll help us defend ourselves well, giving us words to say right when we need them. The Spirit will speak for us, which means God will speak through you. This promise specifically applies to persecution, but I think it translates to many other situations in our life. When, when you are worried about witnessing to a friend or a family member. Because you might be anxious that you won't have the words to say to them or you'll stumble over your words or you won't know what to say. Don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit will give you the words you need in the moment you need them. He's with us. When one of your friends asks you some big question about your faith, don't freak out. You don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to know all the theology or to know all everything what you should say, all the Bible verses that you should quote. Don't worry about that. Trust the Holy Spirit that he will speak through you exactly what is needed when it's needed. When you're worried about what people around will think of you if you stand up for Christ and whatever the situation may be, don't worry about that. Take your stand and let God be your witness and your defense. God, don't worry, don't fear what teachers may throw at you or professor, maybe friends' rejection or strangers' mockery. Okay? God's acceptance and love for you far outweighs them all. A couple weeks ago, a very popular reality TV star found himself in some hot water. You might know what I'm talking about. Uh, Phil Robertson, a star on the show Duck Dynasty, was suspended from his own show for comments he made regarding what the Bible says about homosexuality. 
And immediately after this happened, there was a strong outcry from many Christians and others who thought his rights were being violated. And they were probably right. He, he did seem to be discriminated against. Eventually, the channel he was on, the network, backed off, reinstated him to the show. However, a couple things about the whole fiasco bothered me as it evolved. And the first one was, so I watched Christians' response to this, to what was happening. And we took way too much of an offense from a pretty meaningless form of persecution. I mean, a multi-millionaire TV star being temporarily removed from TV is hardly suffering. Thousands around the world are dying for Christ. But second, I thought, it was a revealing question. I thought, why were we so upset about this? Why did it bother us? And I think the answer is that persecution still scares us a lot. We are so terrified of the possibility of persecution, we freak out about something like this. I highly doubt that this is how Jesus would have responded to, to any kind of situation like this. Given what Jesus says about persecution, I think he would have responded, Good! Bring it on! Opposition, persecution, suffering, these things are good things for you. They keep you strong in your faith. They keep you bold. It secures rewards for you in heaven that you can't even imagine. And it gives you great opportunities on earth to glorify God. I saw a news report last week that said global persecution of Christians doubled in 2013. It means that there was double the amount of recorded martyrdoms in the world than there were in 2012. Double. And our first inclination is to go, whoa! That's kind of scary. It's our world coming to. But no! Don't be afraid! Do not fear! Let's read again. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. When you have a tendency to be worried, be afraid what's coming. Remember your God. Remember his power. Remember how much he cares for you. Remember that his spirit's there with you every step of the way. And remember what's coming soon. Fear God. Fear not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our fears. You know our worries. You know the places that we do not trust you. We pray this morning that we would give you control. In our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, we would just let you speak your love to us. Help us to be comforted by your words. 
and help us to be strong when opposition comes. For your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.